Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special edition of The Other Hand podcast. My guest today is Noah Smith, blogger, podcaster, journalist, economist extraordinaire. I'm going to explore his bio a little bit in a moment. From the outset, I would say that his output is incredible. The range of subjects that he covers, I am only envious of. But your background, Noah, I think originally you were a scientist. Would that be right? Well, not really. I mean, I, I majored in physics in college, but then after that, I, I did my PhD in economics, which is not a real science. So, okay. Well, I think if you if you majored in physics, that in my world is uh, so. Why the switch? Well, honestly, the answer is is depression. I was better at physics than economics, and then my mother died when I was in college, and I got depressed. And I just felt like I needed a change in life. I wanted to move on to something different. You know, when one of my favorite pastimes was reading economics blogs, especially Brad DeLong's blog, you know, any others uh, around Marginal Revolution or whatever. And so I decided that, you know, I would like to be an economics blogger someday. So I did the natural thing you do when you want to be a blogger is I went and got a PhD. And okay. so, <laughs> yes, I, I, I have one of the great unfinished PhDs from 100 years ago. So you've already got one up on me. I too did economics at college, but I, I didn't do, do physics. Well, 100 um, years ago, I, you had to do interesting groundbreaking work to get a PhD. Yeah, so, um, maybe, maybe that's why at I didn't a disadvantage. Yeah. You then went into academia, I think you became a professor. Is that I right? did briefly. I yes, I tried it out. My I didn't want to do it actually, but my PhD advisor prevailed upon me to do it, and I gave it a try, the old uh, college try, as as it were. And then I confirmed that academia wasn't really for me, 
and then started looking for other things to do. I was, you know, uh, fairly lazy and unambitious. And so when Bloomberg came to me and said that we'll pay you to write about economics, because I had this, this popular blog that I did just as a hobby, fulfilling my dream of becoming an economics blogger, by the way. So I, I had fulfilled my dream just with my hobby. Bloomberg came to me and said, well, we'll pay you to write for us and you can live anywhere you want and work, you know, out of any Bloomberg office in the world and, and et cetera, set your own schedule and we'll give you a raise. And I was like, well, okay, I'll do that. Even though writing professionally is not a good career or at least wasn't before Substack. I did that anyway and moved to San Francisco where most of my friends were living at that point. Well, a lot of my friends had moved there just as part of the second tech boom, you know, here in San Francisco. So I moved here and then I was doing that for a few years and then Substack came along and the Substack guys, the people who founded Substack got in touch with me through Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalist, and they got in touch with me and asked me, hey, do you want to start a Substack? And I said, well, no. Um, you know, I, I don't want to charge people for my blog. That would be wrong. So I'll just keep doing it for free. But then a year later, they finally prevailed upon me to try it out. And so I started doing it and I tried it out. But then it was a good thing I did because I, a little while after that, I came down with a a major health problem, which is chronic vestibular migraine, which means screens made me really, really dizzy all the time. And so I had to cut down my screen time. And I had to, at that point, I had to choose between my, my hobby and my job. And I picked my hobby, actually. I said, well, you know, I've, I've, I've been doing the Bloomberg thing a few years and it's, it's, it's nice. I think it's time to move on. So I, I said, well, I need some money. So I'll charge people to read a few of my posts. So I, I started, I paywalled at like a few of the posts and, and people were startlingly willing to, to pay for that. And I still only paywall about uh, one out of three posts. The signups have been great. You know, I'm not one of the top sub stackers, but it's, but, um, you must be you know, close. I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say club, maybe, you know, top 30. Well, that's close to in my book. Yeah. Well, thanks. But I'm, I mean, there's, there's a sort of an upper echelon of, of people who all write about politics. You're, you know, Matt Iglesias and Barry Weiss and Matt Tybee and Judd Legum and all those people, you know, they make like a million or $2 million a year or whatever ridiculous amount. And, and then um, I'm definitely not at, at that echelon, but I, I do all right. And, and I'm able to sustain myself. Yeah. Well, uh, you congratulations. Know, I mean, it's, it sounds like people have always approached you to do these kinds of things. Bloomberg, you mentioned, and then the VCs behind Substack. So I guess that's a kind of an accolade to be invited by these guys to, to, to write. Uh, there's a lot of people, I imagine, very envious of you. Before I actually get into the list of things, uh, or at least some of the things that you've written about, which is incredible and, and illustrates what kind of a, a guy you are, I want to ask you a geeky question, because one of the things that critics of, of economists, or some critics, and indeed some economists, I'm thinking about the mathiness critique that I forgot, the ex-chief economist of the World Bank, I've forgotten his name. Paul Rummer. Paul Rummer, that's right. Sorry, thank you very much. And you once wrote, correct me if I'm wrong, that you thought that the math that economists use is in fact clunky. Is that the right, is that the word that you use? It really, it is, it is clunky. There was a time when economists tried to make their math elegant. This was in the time of, you know, the 70s and 80s when, when everyone tried to make their math elegant and then computers came along and people said, well, we could take the same basic mathematical frameworks and add all kinds of wrinkles to it and solve it with a computer instead of by hand. And, you know, sort of 
finding elegant, you know, defining down problems until you could get elegant closed form solutions on paper went out and large scale simulations of, you know, large state space models came in. And that's fine. That's, that's, you know, that's good in as much as, you know, realism is good. And as long as you have this computer that can do this, great. The downside of this was that, well, there, I, I don't know that I would say that there's a downside of it. I mean, I think it, it was just a good thing. It's no longer possible to defend the sort of math first approach to economics by saying that it's elegant and it's beautiful because it lost. I mean, there's still some game theorists who do stuff like that. That's elegant and beautiful. But in terms of macroeconomics, it lost any elegance and beauty when people just started brute forcing large state space models with computers. Right. Okay. You've written quite a few pieces over the years, even prior to, to Substack, about macroeconomics, macro wars, all that stuff. And your most, most recent macroeconomics piece, um, and you haven't done too many recently, but uh, you talked about macroeconomics still being in its infancy, which I think was very well put. Perhaps you could expand on that just a little bit, because I think that we, Jim and I often talk about macro in, in, the, in a very much media macro way, to, to use somebody else's phrase. Um, and I think it's useful for somebody that is actually on top of all the latest developments in macroeconomics, which you are and I am not, to perhaps... I, I'm not. What... I'm, I'm, six, I'm six, seven years out of date. Well, <laughs> that means you're probably 20 years more up to date than me. Why do, you think, why do you think that macro is still in its infancy? So have you read Thomas Kuhn? The, yep. the paradigm Kuhn Tucker theorems? No, no. <laughs> that's, a, that's a different Kuhn. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's, I'm, my tongue is firmly in my cheek. I was that was a joke. Oh, joke. This is, this is the philosophy of science, this guy, isn't it? Yes. yes. I'm sorry, dry, dry British humor got right yeah. past me. No, don't worry <laughs> about it. Um, so I was saying, uh, oh yeah, you know, he talks about, um, science as being in a pre-paradigmatic period where we essentially don't have good tools to analyze stuff. You know, we don't have, we don't have tools that have had real successes. I'd say that's where we are with macro. I mean, and so for example, this, you think back, you know, chemistry before the periodic table, Sure. You know, before some of the, the notions of elements, kind of the rigorous models that turned out to be very good, you know, in chemistry. Alchemists are something we laugh at today because they were just tinkerers with chemistry. They would just tinker with various solutions of things and you combine it. It's like, oh, my gosh, you, you know, suddenly like combine these two fluids and magically it turns into a crystal. Like you, you just pour one liquid into another and magically it turns into a crystal. And that sounds like something out of a fantasy novel. Now we just call it a precipitate. They didn't know the rules, the system. For they, they were documenting some stylized facts. You know, if I pour this thing into that thing and, and a crystal forms, right? But they didn't really understand what, like the, the basic principles because they didn't have a paradigm. They didn't have this analytical framework that, that had had empirical successes. And I would say that's much of economics actually does have paradigms that work. And people don't know that. And in fact, if you look at the average economist, the you pick a random economist from a random department in America, they will be working on something that actually does have pretty strong connection to reality and probably some empirical validity to it and some successes. But in macroeconomics, which, you know, people, all people know is what you call media macro, which I think I called a macrotainment. And, uh, yes. you know, that's, that's what most people know. You know, it's just in macroeconomics, there's not, we don't have anything that really we know works yet. And there's several reasons for that. One reason is just because if we did have something that worked really well, it would be very hard to know because data is very sparse. It's aggregate time series data. 
so if we had a model that worked at the macro level, it would just be hard to tell because we don't have the data for it. We've got, we've only really started keeping good records since World War II. That's a short period of time. Everything is serially correlated. Everything is cross-country correlated. All the series or time series are correlated with each other in weird ways. And so like everything is correlated. And when you just have, when you've got, you know, 70 years of data with like various time series that are strongly correlated, you don't really know that that's not enough to validate any model. And when you see macroeconomists do something like, oh, I did my toy model and I produced some squiggles and these squiggles are basically the same size as the squiggles of the real economy. Well, that doesn't prove anything. That's, that's the lowest bar imaginable. And yet we've given Nobel prizes for that. But yeah, that's the, that's the lowest bar imaginable. And what can you do? So, you know, at, at the macro level, data is very sparse. You know, that's, that's one reason we don't have stuff that works. Another thing, another reason is just because this is, you know, a macroeconomy is a difficult, complex thing. We don't even know how complex it is, actually. So, you know, people, some people try to simplify the macroeconomy down with representative agent models where we pretend that the economy is just like one person trading against themselves. And that's, I'm pretty sure that's too simple, but people have done that. And for years, that's what all that people did. This representative agent thing. We don't know how simple or how complex the economy is. In fact, there's there's some well-established theorems that show that it's very difficult to know, you know, whether so your aggregation we method. We don't know what we don't know. Is there a read, we don't know what is, we don't know. Is there a read across from what you're saying about macroeconomics and data into the world of finance, or at least finance practitioners? Because one of the things that media finance types do is that they draw things like Schiller's P.E., which is based on annual data going back 100 years or so. And there's lots of articles published about the equity risk premium, for example, that just that's looking at very short runs of data and drawing quite definitive conclusions that I've often thought aren't warranted by simply the data that they have available to them. Is, is, do you think that there's a read across there? Of course. You know, one of Larry Summers' uh, early papers, actually, I don't know if it's early, but, uh, but he had a paper where he basically showed that for certain tests of market efficiency, you would need thousands of years of data. Yeah. And those tests are pretty closely correlated to what you might observe from the Schiller PE, actually. So in other words, to know whether the Schiller PE reverts, we'd need thousands of years of data, even without some underlying structural change. And I would argue that there has been underlying structural change in the reversion process of the Schiller PE, namely that, you know, we change interest rate regimes and when you change sure. interest rate regimes, people are willing to hold assets, the same amount of, of cash flows, you know, their discount rate just changes. And so interest rate regimes make the Schiller PE non-stationary because it's not adjusted for interest rates. It's yeah, not adjusted yeah. for whether the world is aging or shrinking or growing or whether productivity is growing strong or fast or blah, 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 or whether we have the internet, which somehow creates a whole bunch of monopoly power that wasn't there before. None of that stuff is is in the Schiller P. The Schiller P is just a reduced form to variable for our, thing. For our non-finance um, listeners, the Schiller P is, is an adjusted form of the simplest ratio that is used in financial markets by financial analysts. It just takes the aggregate price of a stock market and divides it by a particular measure of profits, of earnings. And a lot of people have built careers on drawing straight lines through the history, the 100, or 100 year or so history of this and saying that the, the Schiller PE has averaged about 16 or 17 times earnings for the US stock market throughout history. And then saying it's whether it's cheap or expensive relative to that straight line arithmetic, not even geometric average. And as you say, that 
drawing a straight line through an aggregate time series like that makes very little sense. I mean, it, it makes little sense, except the question is, what else are you going to do? Yeah, which is going to be my next point. The, the, the problem we got is that we ain't got anything else at the moment, really, have we, to do media finance? Right. And, and the solution, of course, is just say, forget the Schiller PE, buy an index fund and hold it till you die. Or you're yeah. ready to retire, you need liquidity or whatever, right? You need to pay for, for your sure. kid's wedding, I don't know. So that, sure. that's that's sort of the alternate. Yeah. Um, now, what I'd like to just change tack slightly and uh, tell the listeners um, something about the stuff that you've written about relatively recently. I couldn't begin to list all of the things that you've written about over the last few years. You've been, I think, about two years on Substack. But a list of just taking the, the titles of the things that certainly have interested me. And I would say that your Substack is the only sub. I subscribe to lots of Substacks, but yours is the only one that I pay for. And oh, well, thank me, you! Oh my just, gosh! Let, let me just say to all of our listeners that um, it's money well spent. And as Noah said earlier on, he does uh, open up the majority of his of his uh, posts. And so you, you, I would thoroughly recommend you pay for all of them, but you can certainly get a good few of them for nothing. Um, but just just the list of the things, and I, I'll, I'll pick a couple then to perhaps explore just for a few minutes. You've written about um, tech bubbles, uh, both now and then, in the sense that the one that burst in March 2000, you've written a long post about why that's about the similarities, but mostly differences between what happened then and the the, the bubble, if it is one, that is bursting now. You've written a post called, Is the End of History back on track. And that was a reference to Francis Fukuyama's book. Um, you've written about artificial intelligence in a particular way that really, really interests me because the um, the aspect of this that interests a lot of people, obviously, is the much forecast jobs apocalypse that artificial intelligence and automation is supposed to have wrought at a time when we seem to be short of workers. And that's really, really interesting. And we could talk about that all day. You've written about Europe. And you've talked um, quite con controversially in a European context about Europe not deindustrializing because there's a lot of chatter in European economic circles about the way the energy crisis is going to prompt deindustrialization, particularly in the industrial economies like Germany. And one of the things that I've noticed recently is, is stemming from that is uh, people have got very different views about what the next phase of the energy crisis is going to bring. And the, I'll pick this up with you in a second. But The Economist, which normally gets these big picture things very wrong, it has to be said, there is a curse of The, the Economist's cover, thinks that next winter is going to be an absolute catastrophe for Europe in particular, because we don't have uh, we won't have enough gas relative to demand. The FT, the Financial Times, a very august UK publication, has taken a very different view and is saying that Europe has handled things very, very well and there's been a surprising amount of efficiency gains. And I think I think you're in that camp. Uh, yes. I mean, I think that, yes, that is that is proven to be okay. true. Um, let me go on. You've written about China a lot. Um, you obviously are fascinated, as, as most of us are, by China. You write about antitrust, and maybe the right target for antitrust practitioners has been Apple. Um, you talk a lot about alternative energy, about energy in general, actually, not just alternatives. But uh, I've noticed at least a couple of posts recently, absolutely fascinating, about batteries. You've talked about the the, the so-called poly crisis. I think it was Adam Tooze coined that. If it wasn't him, he certainly writes about it a lot. And it's very popular at the moment. You probably know about 
Nuro Rubini's book about uh, essentially the apocalypse or Armageddon is is upon us. And it, it certainly is all over um, all sorts of publications that we're in this, that or the other sort of crisis. The polycrisis is about how they're all linked. I, I'm pleased to say that I think Noah takes a slightly more optimistic view of the world than Nuro Rubini does. You've written about Taiwan. Yes, but so does everyone else. Yes. Taiwan <laughs> and World War Three has been one of your topics. You've written about one of my favorite topics, the UK economy, another fascinating post. I mentioned the Financial Times earlier on. You had a whole, well, I think most of a post about an error made by the data journalist who is actually very, very good, John Byrne Murdoch, who did actually make a mistake. I agreed with you when he when he talked about the income distribution in the States in a particular way. You've, you've written about the origins of wokeness. You, you've written about Pinochet in Chile. You've written about the Pakistan economy. You've written about the Mexican economy. I could go on. I could I could take up the rest of your time by just listing the uh, the headlines of some of the stuff that you've written about. Um, I don't know whether that scores you as a polymath or Renaissance man, but it certainly leaves me very envious. Where do you find all the time for this? Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. No. If you look back at my old uh, blog which was on Blogger, you'll see that I did the same thing for free back when I had a real job. Um, and so... Where did you find the time then? I don't know. Um, you know, not being married, not having kids. The answer is it doesn't take that much time. I think this takes a lot of time, but it really doesn't because most people have hobbies that they do. they spend quite a lot of time on or entertainment stuff. You know, people are always talking about, oh, did you see this episode of that TV show? I'm like, how do you have all the time to watch this TV? I don't have all the time to watch that TV. You know, I'll watch like a couple episodes of TV a week, maybe, which I feel is like a lot of TV. And then people are always know exactly what's going on on TV. So I think, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's the TV time that I'm, I'm cutting out. I don't know. The answer is that it doesn't take it doesn't take as much time as you think. You must work very, very, very efficiently. One of the things that about all of this is, of course, the the, the topics that I've just given examples of, and it's only a few examples of what Noah has written about. I could add other things that have interested me a lot. Things like the wisdom of historians. Why can't the U.S. build trains? Is a question that that Noah has asked. The range of topics is quite extraordinary. We're doing a podcast about your stuff now. And I was first turned on to podcasts about three or four years ago now by an Irish journalist, an ex-professional soccer player, actually, who had become a very big media personality in Ireland um, in in his midlife. He had his own TV show, his own newspaper columns. 
uh, and was a regular sports pundit, but also wrote books, wrote biographies, and um, was a current affairs journalist across both broadcast and newspaper media. Quite late on in life, about three or four years ago, I was having a chat with him, and he was in the process of giving it all up, beginning a podcast. And his thesis was, at the time, that long-form journalism was a, a big gap in uh, the media landscape because most modern newspapers don't have the resources, time or inclination to do it. There are honourable exceptions. You could argue, I've mentioned the FT and The Economist, and there are one or two others. But his point was, of course, the, de the demise of newspapers meant that the, the demise of long-form journalism in its traditional form was in hand. And he was starting his own podcast rather than a blog. And I have to say, even in an Irish context, this podcast, this guy's name, no, is Eamon Dunphy, and our Irish listeners will know him very, very well. It's been massively successful. He has, you know, a million plus downloads every month, a huge success for a guy well into his 70s. He's reinvented himself as a new media sort of person. And I, at the time, I got it completely wrong. I said, no, podcasts will never take off. So it just it just shows you never make a forecast. But this new media, it's a real thing now. It's Podcasting in particular is interesting to me because it's been around for a long time, but it's only been relatively recently that it's taken off. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Uh, we had a conversation pre-going on air that uh, your podcast that you do with Brad DeLong, a well-known uh, economic historian, just got a great book out, um, which I'd recommend to anybody. You have fun with that, but it's not an area that you've explored or pushed very or invested a lot of your time in. That's right. And the the reason, um, and this is going to be, you know, I don't mean this as, as an insult to any of the, the listeners, but um, I'm not a giant podcast fan, to be honest, uh, or to yourself, obviously. I have always felt that podcasts are not information dense enough for me. I want to assimilate large quantities of information quickly. And, and, you know, part of this may be what we were talking about before, about working efficiently for me understanding things about the world requires assimilating a large amount of information very quickly. And so podcasts, you know, although I'm, I'm, I do enjoy audiobooks um, because books have a lot of information that you just don't get in other places. The people who say you shouldn't read books are just wrong. You should read books, not all books. Some books don't, some books are just a, a, a blog post should have been a blog post or a few blog posts. Some books should have been an academic paper or a few academic papers, but a lot of books are really good and, and there's no real replacement for them. And so I'd listen to audiobooks and, you know, on double speed in my spare time. And that takes up all my listening time and podcasts. I feel like have less density of information than audiobooks uh, or books or, or written, which cause audiobooks are just books and books are written stuff and written stuff has high information density. So with podcasts, I feel like you know, I need to listen to it on 5x to get the kind of information density I need. And then I can't hear what anyone's saying. So that's why I don't do podcasts. And that's no, as we say in America, th that is no shade toward people who love podcasts. It's, you know, it's a great medium. I ha I don't even know what is what is great about podcasts, except that people come away with podcasts understanding stuff. Uh, and so I think that they work in that, in the sense of informing people pretty well, as long as you have a good podcaster. And I just, since I've never been a, a fan of podcasts, I'm not a natural podcaster because I think you have to really be a fan of something in order to do it well, because just like a generative AI, a lot of what we learn is subtly copied. And so I think that that is why I, I've never gotten into podcasts. I've never gotten into podcasting because I've never gotten into podcasts. 
uh, you know, I'm not averse to doing it. There's nothing wrong with it, you know, from production side, but to learn what's a good podcast, I'd have to listen to a lot more than I do. In addition, the market for podcasts is interesting because you see podcasts are very Pareto distributed. A few podcasters make a lot of money and most podcasters don't make a lot of money. And in addition to being Pareto distributed, the, it seems like entry is difficult at this point. So if you look at the top podcasts, none of them were created recently. You don't see people rocketing to the top of the podcast anymore as you do see on say YouTube or TikTok or Substack or many platforms have people rocket to the top. But for some reason, podcasts inspire such loyalty that it's effectively a saturated market. I'm sorry if I'm I'm distracted. My rabbit is deciding to rip at a towel, which I don't want her to do. But for uh, our listeners, Noah Noah has a a wide range of interests in many political, economic, and social topics, but is also fascinated and loves, I I dare say, rabbits. Is that a fair comment? I do. I love dogs and cats too, which I had for most of my life, but I recently got my first pair of rabbits and they're really great. They're basically like vegan cats and I really like them. Just, you know, I, I, Love dogs and cats too, I'm, but I'm just learning about rabbits for the first time, and I think they're an underappreciated pet. The primary reason being that almost no one seems to know that rabbits are very easy to litter train. So they don't, people, I don't know why, but people think rabbits poop all over your house, and they don't. Uh, if you litter train them, they just poop in the litter. But anyway, they're, they're pretty great pets, and except when they decide to rip up a towel, as my rabbit is re- doing right now, which is annoying me. But I'll sort that well, out later. I, I, as always, when I interact with your stuff, no, I've just learned something that I didn't know before. Um, so th- thank you for the the poop tip about rabbits. Oh yes, um, it's very rabbits are very easy to litter train. You just um, you if you put the litter box next to the hay feeder, they'll litter train themselves in a day. Okay, from the sublime to the ridiculous. Let's <laughs> in, in the time that that um, I have left, or you have left, right. rather we have left. Which is one of the of things that I certainly interests our Irish audience, and I imagine just about everybody that uh, is looking at the state of the world at the moment is uh, the tech bubble, which you have written about a lot. And relatedly, um, we've been told for years there have been books, articles, talks, podcasts about the jobs apocalypse that is going to result from AI. You have a particular perspective on this. Could you, in words uh, of three syllables or less, um, in a couple of minutes, tell us what that perspective is? I'm not sure about the three syllables part, but... Go for it. Basically, basically, though all unless AIs are exactly the same as humans, there will always be something for humans to do because... Even if AI is better than humans at every single task that possibly exists, the comparative advantage, the ratio of skill at different tasks will be different between humans and AI. And that that ratio is what really matters because both humans and AI have limited resources. AI, we're used to thinking of things on a computer as infinite in availability, how you can just press a button and then you can copy text infinitely, you can send information freely throughout the world. So we're used to anything on a computer being resourceless. But AI is actually very resource intensive. As my friend Rune likes to say, every time you ask a question, you're lighting a pile of GPUs on fire. Those are uh, graphical processing units, the chips they used to do AI, and uh, which are getting more expensive. And so as you know, th- that's a limited resource because everything, you know, humans have limited time and AI has limited GPUs and computing power, etc. Because of that, there will be things for humans to do because our balance of our balance of skills is different, even if the AI manages to be better at any individual task than a human. 
That's the principle of comparative advantage, and that's been understood for a long time. So I used an example, which is actually a slight modification of a very old example of a venture capitalist um, named Mark, uh, who is an inhumanly fast typist, but who still hires someone else to type up you know, meetings and memos and things because his time is better spent doing something else. And the AI, even if it somehow manages to be better than humans at absolutely everything, which it may or may not, given that it's trained on humans, you know, it's bas- it's it's us talking to ourselves in a fancy way. Given that it's trained on on the human corpus, it may or may not ever be as good as humans. Uh, but but if it is better than humans at every sort of task, it will still will still be hired to do something because of the comparative advantage of the situation. And that's a very deep but simple economic principle that I think people. You know, it, it's it's surprisingly hard to understand how you can how one person can be better at every single thing than another person, and yet still hire, be willing to hire the other person, pay the money to do something that they themselves are actually better at doing. So if you hire someone who's worse than you to do something for you, when you could just do it yourself better. But that's it's a it's a mind blowing concept of comparative advantage. And so whether you know how this works out for inequality is another question. That's a complicated and difficult question. We don't really know. But how, in terms of jobs, are humans going to be replaced? The answer is no, because of comparative advantage and resource limitations. We don't have unlimited resources. And that's it's it sounds like a simple idea, but it's actually a complicated and difficult idea to understand. And it's hard to understand why it applies in this case. Everyone just thinks, what if AI is better than us at anything and there's nothing we do better than the AI? Well, there's humans out there who are like that, and yet they still hire you. Absolutely. One of the things that I think an economics training gives you is the ability to uh, realize uh, a few things. One is just how complicated the world is and how counterintuitive some pretty basic economic results that are widely accepted. Economists do agree on lots of things. And comparative advantage is one of those things that is terribly difficult for even some economists, but certainly non-economists to accept because it does run counter to human intuition. And more generally, the, the, the virtue of an economics training is that if you realize that in, in a system where everything depends upon everything else, it's very hard to forecast and very easy to come up with lots of counterintuitive results. That's right. That's right. And so basically, some of these simple ideas, economists have been appointed as the keepers of these ideas for reasons that are sociological and weird and historical. But a computer scientist can understand comparative advantage in about 20 minutes. It's that hard. 20 minutes is actually hard. But but the principle can be understood in about 20 minutes by a computer scientist, by your average data scientist, certainly by a physicist, certainly by a chemist. Like it's, it's really not that hard of a concept. But for some reason, economists have been appointed as the sort of knowledge keepers, the, you know, the medieval monks of our time who keep this basic principle to ourselves and then sometimes talk about it. Things like, you know, opportunity cost is another one. There's a list of about 12 of these concepts and you learn them in Econ 101. You pretend to learn them for a test and then you forget about them as soon as you get scared that a computer will take your job. Right. Some final comments. In, again, I'm conscious, as I said earlier, of time and I keep talking, but the the tech bubble bursting, such as, such as it is a bubble. The list of job losses is now quite long. It started to reach companies in Ireland. Intel, Amazon, Facebook all have big presence in Ireland, as does Twitter. How worried are you? I'm not worried at all. I think that sometimes sectors get too big, get these bubbles, sector-specific bubbles, over-enthusiasm about some things. 
we don't see a lot of we don't see a lot of companies going bankrupt right now. We don't see any risk to the overall macro economy. Employment is still incredibly good. You know, some people are going to be paid less, but these are people who are making $700,000 a year or or kids right out of school making $200,000 a year. Like no one's going to really cry for those people and wage compression in the United States or in UK or et cetera is good. It's good. It's good for as long as the underlying macro economy is robust and wages are rising at the bottom end, I'm not worried at all because, you know, as a good utilitarian uh, with a you know logarithmic utility function or a Rawlsian or whatever you want to call it, uh, that's, uh, that's something I'd, I wouldn't explain on my own podcast. But OK, so what that means is that you care about the um, the people who are the worst off. You care about yeah. a lot more. And, and so not, isn't that happening? I mean, we had data out today, just today. You may not have seen it that got the financial markets really worried because wages in the last month in the United States rose by 0.6 of a percent, which is awful. But from a, <laughs> from, oh, no. from the perspective that you've oh, just no. given us, it's, <laughs> oh, that's it's great, isn't it? That's good. That, that, that's absolutely right. And so, um, you know, the, the problem we have in our economy right now is inflation, which is eroding incomes for the middle class who are, you know, a very broad segment of society and also the people who vote. So that's a, that is a problem. Inflation is a problem. Hopefully we're, we're getting it under control or we'll do so soon. Uh, there's some early, you know, the supply pressures are easing, you know, oil's getting cheaper and whatnot. So we may be that that's going to make the task easier of getting it under control. But the point is we're in a giant economic boom and the people at the bottom are doing better than the people at the top. And that's fine. Of course, people at the top don't think of that because they've already adjusted to a consumption lifestyle that fits their income. So they've already bought the big house and they have the mortgage and they've gotten used to hiring nannies and eating out and going on vacations and, and doing all the other, you know, having all the cars whatever. And they're like, well, I'm stretched month to month. Yeah, because you decided to live the lifestyle of a, and you were able to live the lifestyle of a rich person. Good for you, except that one thing that people should know is that the incomes of the, of the people at the top of the distribution are always more volatile. And so if you look at the 1%, that changes hands in most years. You know, people, people in the 1% drop out and new people come into the 1%. Incomes at the top are volatile. And so you have, if you are at the top, if you are earning 500K a year as a like software manager for Google, right? Then you want to, you don't, you don't want to act as if your income is as constant as someone who earns, you know, $30,000 a year working at a, um, a gas station. Well, I guess, I mean, those people are vulnerable too, but the point is that you, your income will have big swings and you should plan for that. And so right now we're seeing wage compression. We're seeing income compression across the distribution. I'm fine with that. As long as, you know, like I said, as long as the people at the bottom of the distribution are doing better and better, I'm fine with it. And there's an electoral consideration, but, but which is why we should care about the middle class too. But there's essentially no reason to worry about the falling incomes of the upper class unless it has macroeconomic implications that hurt people lower down the chain. So in 2008, you know, we had this giant crash that hurt poor people worse and hurt middle-class people worse. And so there was a reason to, you know, many people criticized economists for saying bail out the banks, but they made the right decision. And Congress made the right decision. The Fed made the right decision on all of this in 2008, because protecting the incomes of the rich was not done for the to, in order to protect the lifestyles of the rich. It was done in order to protect macroeconomic stability uh, so that poor people could do okay. But now poor people are, are doing fine. They're not, inflation is a problem. Inequality has been going down. 
In fact, inequality was going down even before the inflation got started, even in the late 2000s, from like 2013-ish until 2019, before the pandemic, before any of this. Uh, inequality was also starting to inch down. And, uh, and that was a good thing. And so I'm, I'm, as long as the people at the bottom are doing better, I'm not panicking. And one of the ways in which they're doing better, of course, is that the jobs apocalypse from AI hasn't arrived. And in fact, we've got the other side of the problem, which is that in most economies, it's described as a shortage of workers. Certainly every city that I travel in, I'm in Canada at the moment, but in Ireland and in the UK, every bar, restaurant, newspaper is full of help wanted ads. There's right. a, apparently a So people getting jobs, as we know, is usually a good thing. Yes. Everyone, where's the robot apocalypse? Everyone can get a job right now. Pretty much everyone who wants a job has a job and inequality is going down. Why am I, you know, all the terror of robots is entirely science fiction. I've used the chat bots. They're really good. You know, they're good at writing stuff. Uh, Some some occupations will be destroyed. Others will be created. That happens. I doubt that my, uh, my blog will be replaced by chatbots anytime soon, but it's possible it will, and I'll find something else to do. But but fundamentally, the world doesn't need, sh- shouldn't bend over backwards to worry about me very much. And it'll be about giving people the confidence and, and the resources to find something else to do. Well, that too, that too. Yeah. And so I think we've we've feared we we've gotten into a paradigm of fearing the future. And to be on, perfectly honest, the UK is even worse about this than the United States. The United States is somewhat bad. The UK has just descended into an absolute, you know, hiding under the bed, duck and cover sort of terror of everything in the future. And I, I've seen surveys to this effect in The Economist, where people really hate the idea that that incomes will go down, and people really hate the idea of economic growth. What What do you like? Nothing. You know what What are you waiting for? You know, there is a, a, the UK. There's a peculiar psychopathology going on at the moment, where if you go through the menu of things that an economist would suggest as being good for growth, there is a blocking constituency for every single one of them. For every single one, that's right. But but yet, when you don't get growth in the UK, and then people's incomes stagnate and whatever, then they get mad also. So they get mad at absolutely everything. So the the UK UK society has become pathological in a way that American society has become only partly pathological that is americans have some of this problem but we're it's 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 overcomable we're able we're able to overcome this and we we have our own insurmountable problems in other areas but which i won't go into but um but the i'm i'm not happy about what i'm seeing out of the uk and i'm i'm annoyed that you know i mean john Byrne murdoch is a smart and good guy i know him you know he's he's one of the best and yet he's still his pessimism about the UK is such that he it spilled over and care, and caused him to mischaracterize America's economy as a poor economy as well when it's absolutely not. And so and that's and you know most like UK people are are embracing degrowth and this sort of catastrophic doomerist anti-capitalist environmentalism with no actual recommendations except to essentially go have a block party. So it's extinction rebellion is simply a maudlin block party that people go out and party in the streets, you know, with, with essentially no policy implications. We have our own problem. I'm going to steal that line about Extinction Rebellion. Um, I'm going to write it down right now. It's a modern block party. I've taken far too much of your time. I'd love at some point in the future when you have the time to do this again. I, I know that we'd have given our listeners a sense of the incredible array of topics and the depth to which you, your analysis goes. And I take your remarks about podcasting. 
funnily enough, sitting in the podcast chair that I am at the moment, I happen to agree with you that uh, um, it, 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 it is a medium that sometimes leaves uh, depth out. Uh, but I think in this podcast, at least, we've given a, a hint of how you might uh, pursue some topics in this forum um, in depth, because I think that what this kind of thing does will, A, inform people, certainly I have learned a lot today, and it encourages me to go and read. And you mentioned the importance of reading, and I hope that a lot of people will be encouraged to go and read your Substack site and indeed other <laughs> stuff you. as well. Thank you so much. And and yeah, no, I mean, I, I think podcasts can get very deep ideas across. I think it just, uh, it takes a while. You know, you got to drill down. And that's what we're trying to do here. Noah, thank you so much. I can't tell you how grateful I am for, to you for your time today. And I know our listeners will feel the same way. So thanks very much. And hopefully we will speak again real soon. Thank you so much for having me on. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.